Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4? We'll be looking at verses 17 to 24 this morning. Thanks. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, and I'd like to read this for us as we begin this morning. Paul writes, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you teach us? Would you guide us in the ways of righteousness and truth? And by your Holy Spirit, would you just make the applications that we need to hear today? This is a great text that shows us how we are to live as believers in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would be open to what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1999, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy wrote a book that was called How Now Should We Live? And it was a, a destined to become one of those Christian classics. Their aim in writing the book was to help us to develop a biblical worldview that would look at all of life from a Christian perspective. Uh, they recognized that there were many people who called themselves Christians who saw Christianity as more of a private faith, just about me and God. And, and they wanted to expand that because when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, he's not just Lord of our life, but he is Lord of all. He's Lord of everything in this world. And he reigns over business and over government, over nations, over industry. He reigns over every area of our life. And he wanted us to see what God has to say about that. And they also recognize the challenge that that is for us as Christians because we live in a fallen world and we struggle with this question, how are we to live as Christians in this fallen world? The world in which we live is in rebellion against God. It has its own worldview. And that worldview uh, has its own heroes or champions. It has its own set of values and beliefs about how we are to live in this world and what's important, what's significant. And those two worldviews are in conflict. And we see that in several different areas of life. For example, uh, tonight I, I saw that the Grammys were going to be on television. And that's a show that I usually don't watch because I'm not too into pop culture and uh, not really familiar with some of the music that's being sung today. But I remember last year at this time, an interesting thing occurred with Natalie Grant. 
Natalie Grant was at the Grammys last year, and she was nominated for two different awards as a Christian. She was nominated for a particular best song of the year as well as the best album. And so she had chosen to attend this uh, event. But in the course of the event, you know, there were some pretty outrageous things that happened that, again, illustrate this clash of worldviews. There was a uh, same-sex marriage ceremony that was performed in the course of this. There was a a satanic ritual that one of the performers did. Uh, And all of this, in addition to kind of the coarse language and, and provocative dress that is there. And finally, it just got to be too much, and Natalie Grant walked out. She just, as a Christian in her spirit, just could not take it after a while. And what she tweeted when she left was she said, you know, I've never been more honored to sing about Jesus and for Jesus, and I've never been more sure of the path that I've chosen. She had chosen to follow Christ, not to live like the world around us. And that's hard, you know, it's hard when you want to be successful in a certain industry. It's hard when, you know, people are questioning that or putting that down. And yet on the other side, when you see the fruit of righteousness and the joy and freedom that comes for living for Christ, it is so worth it. But that's what Paul is writing about in this passage. How are we to live as Christians in a fallen world? What do we do when we face conflicts at work or in our family or personal life? Well, Paul tells us, first of all, that we are to turn from sin. In verses 17 through 19, he talks about putting away the old way of life. That this is the life that they had come out of. The believers in this church in Ephesus were largely Gentiles. They had come out of this kind of pagan lifestyle that he describes here. And frankly, the the world that Paul is describing here is a world that is very much like our own. I mean, there was greed and power and sexual immorality. There was war and violence. There's corruption in government. There are challenges that they see. I mean, Greek life had its arena where the games were played. It had its theater that was decadent, kind of body and in your face. And that's not too different from our world, is it? You know, when you think about all the things that are out there today. And they had their philosophies and competing ideologies and their beliefs and their own understanding of the gods in a plural sense. Not one true God who ruled over all. And Paul looked at their lifestyle and he called it futile. They were futile in their thinking. And that word futile means that it is empty, it is vain, it's really good for nothing. It profits for nothing to go down this road. And he describes a progression in sin that we see here, and we also see it in Romans 1 when he talks about the same kind of issues. And it progresses in this way in a person's life where there is hardness of heart to the things of God. Rather than responding to the light of God's grace, rather than responding to the revelation that he gives both in nature and in his word, people harden their heart. They don't want to acknowledge God as God. They refuse to worship him and they suppress the truth. And that leads to a darkness of heart. An absence of spiritual understanding. 
Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man, that is the person without the Spirit of God, doesn't understand spiritual things. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, no amount of reasoning is going to help them to understand the things of God. They need to be born again. We needed to be born again to understand the things of God. And it leads to a deadness, oh, excuse me, a deadness of heart uh, where they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Paul says. They do not know God, and that is the root problem. And ultimately, that leads to a recklessness of heart that we see in verse 19, where they have given themselves over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's never enough. They keep pushing the boundaries. They flaunt their sin. It is in your face. They engage in self-destructive behavior all because they do not know God. And in our own life, we once were like that before we came to know Christ. We were living in sin. We were separated from God. There was a hardness in our heart, and only by the grace of God and the work of his Holy Spirit does he open our eyes to see his truth. The problem that Paul is describing here in Ephesus is not a new problem. It is as old as man. God has given a witness of himself in the world around us, but men continue to suppress that truth. We read in the Old Testament, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, and you can kind of put these verses up as we go through it here. Um, Go back to where it starts. That's at the end. There you go. Uh, Isaiah would write in chapter 5, and he'd say, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah looked out at his culture at the nation of Israel at that time and he saw people that were celebrating all the wrong things they had turned things upside down they were calling evil good and good evil they were celebrating those who were champions at drinking wine or mixing drinks or living it up in a party kind of lifestyle those who were able to get away in the system and get away with crimes or evil or immorality and they had everything backwards why It's because of where he ends here when he said that they rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One. It is this book, the Bible, that keeps us in check, if you will. It's his word that shows us what the boundaries are and how we are to live. And when men reject God's word, what standards are we to live by? Everyone becomes a law unto themselves, doing what they think is right. And it leads to corruption. It leads to greater decadence and sin. Jeremiah saw that a hundred years later in Israel. And he asked the question, are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, 
They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. And that's a reflection of that hardening of the heart that takes place when people give themselves over to sin and they go farther and farther in it and they don't even recognize it anymore. They don't see their sinful behavior as anything that would be offensive. In fact, they begin to justify it and rationalize it and call it good. And all of that can have an influence on us too if we are not careful. Television, movies, music, advertising, what we see, what we read can affect our thinking as well. It pushes the boundaries of what is right and what is wrong. It tries to call attention to itself by doing more shocking things. And so on television, I mean, we have an abundance of crime shows today that are on television. And they all are trying to outdo the other one and becoming more graphic, more twisted in what they are portraying. We have shows that are more provocative in the sexual language they use and what they show. It's more blatant, it's more perverted, it's more in your face. In our world, we have those that long for money and power, and they don't care if they take advantage of other people and walking over them. It's trying to get ahead themselves. And all of that kind of thinking is out there, and it can affect us too if we are not careful. For example, Tyler Brown is a Christian. He wrote a book called Why Holiness Matters. And he shared about a television program that he was watching for a while and then just had to turn it off. It was the television series Dexter. Now, I've never seen this, so I did a little reading about it to find out, well, what was this show about? And this particular TV series started out on Showtime and then was moved over to CBS, and they had to kind of clean it up a little bit to get it to a TV 14 rating. But it was a show that was really acclaimed by the Academy. I mean, it won 19 Primetime Emmy Awards, five Writers Guild of America Awards, seven Golden Globes. I mean, there were millions of people watching this show. Well, what was it about? Well, he had even had some of his Christian friends rave about the show and and encourage him to watch it. And the show was about Dexter Morgan who through his life is a forensic expert in the Miami Police Department. And he lives a modest life, and through most of the episodes, he said that that I watched, he had a girlfriend with two children. But his life, however, had an extremely dark side. He operated as a serial killer who went after people who had not been caught by the law. And so here's this kind of vigilante taking justice into his own hands, Kind of on the one side, trying to look like he's living this normal life, and yet he's got this dark side. But what Tyler wrote about is he said the amount of sexuality and violence in the show was overwhelming at times. Despite the plot of the show being incredibly captivating or well-written, my wife and I quit watching the show because it was affecting our thought processes. I found myself thinking about some of these perverse things during the day. And he would say, you know, I'd watch this and then my mind would go that direction. I found myself thinking things I didn't want to think about. I I found myself looking at other women in a way that my wife would never want me to do. And finally, we had to turn it off. 
And that is what I think Paul is getting at in this passage when he says there comes a point where we need to make a break with the world and put the past behind. Because if we engage in those kind of things in terms of what we are watching, reading, seeing, they do have an effect on us. They can harden our heart. They can desensitize us to sin and to things that are offensive to a holy God. It's why the scripture encourages us instead in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on those things and you will find yourself being transformed. That leads to the second point of what Paul is saying in this passage. We are to be renewed in our mind. And that renewing takes place by the word of God. Look again at verse 20. Paul says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. This was your old way of life. Now you have come to know Jesus. And surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. There was a change that took place in your life when you came to know Christ. A change that results in what many have called this great divide between the world and between Jesus Christ. And in this school of Christ, he tells us some things about Jesus. Jesus is the subject of this school. You came to know Christ. You came to know a person. You entered into a personal relationship with the living God. Christianity is not a set of rules and regulations that you need to follow. It is a personal relationship with Christ. And you heard and you understood the gospel. You understood who Jesus is and why he came and why we need him. And in this school, Jesus is the teacher. You heard him. Now, I know the NIV says you heard of him, but this is one of those cases where the word of is not in the original. It's not in the Greek. You heard him. It was his voice that spoke to you. And I I think about that. Even though you hear me teaching and speaking today, what is really happening in your heart when you hear these things, if there is any truth in this at all, you are hearing Jesus speak to you. And you're saying, he is saying to you, listen to this. Or you know what I'm talking about here. Or you know the area that I want you to work on in your life. And it is Jesus who speaks to us, just like Jesus spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus when he was going to persecute the church. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's me that you are persecuting. It's not just those individuals that you are seeking to round up and to arrest. It is me. And it is Jesus who also says to all of us in Revelation 3.20 that here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. When the gospel is shared, when the invitation is given, it's Jesus who says that I'm standing at the door of your heart and knocking. 
will you let me in? And in this school, Jesus is also the atmosphere in which we live and learn. Paul says you were taught in him. His favorite phrase to describe our relationship with Christ is that we are in Christ. We are in him, and that makes all the difference in the world. You come to know Jesus, you are now placed in him. You live in Christ. You are to abide in Christ. You are to walk with Christ. And all of this takes place. That's why you can say that Jesus is this atmosphere in which we live and breathe and are changed. The more we get to know him, the more that transformation takes place. David Brainerd, early American missionary, said Christ, once known and understood and loved, brings with him into a man's life a different atmosphere. An atmosphere in which spontaneously the evil things begin to droop and fine things burst to bloom. He recognized that. This young man who had given his life to Christ saw that when we spend time with God in his word, when we fellowship with him, worship him, there's a change in our whole way of thinking, our whole way of living, and that spontaneously things began to happen by the Spirit of God where the old passes away and the new comes. That's powerful. And what does Christ teach us in this new school that we are in? In verse 22, he tells us that he teaches us with regard to our former way of life to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. The key is to abide in Christ. That's the key to the Christian life. Jesus said in John 15, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be given to you. There is power in abiding in Christ. He wants us to have that kind of fellowship whether his word is at home in our heart and we are growing in our relationship with him and we find ourselves praying, we're seeing answers to prayer, we're seeing growth and fruit in the Christian life. Paul will write to the Romans, same idea. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. It's a choice that we must make daily to put off the old and put on the new. And there, there's no shortcut here. There's no other way to do this than to be in God's word, to think that we can you know, somehow grow in our relationship with Christ, kind of uh, just it's going to happen you know, automatically without us putting in some effort, it's not going to happen. It's a choice we make daily to say no to the flesh and yes to Christ, to put off sin and to put on the new, to look at life through his eyes. And that's why Paul says, thirdly, that we are to strive to be holy. Verse 24, we are to strive to be holy. We are to put on the new self that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, it's interesting how Scripture speaks of our new self in two ways. On the one side, it speaks of our new self as a present possession. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. 
I mean, that, it's happened. You accepted Christ, you become a new creation. You have a new nature. The old has died and, and the new has come. And yet Paul will speak repeatedly about our need to put this on, that there is a part that we must do, that we must put on the new self and do that daily. Now, that's kind of interesting. It's a present possession, but it is also something that we need to work at. And uh, maybe we can understand it in this way. You know, as a parent, have you ever had to remind your children to put on their coat in the winter? Uh, sometimes kids don't want to wear them. I remember when Ben was in high school, he used the excuse that the lockers over there are kind of small and that it doesn't really fit with books and everything to get it in there. So he'd want to rush out the door without a coat in the middle of winter and do that too. And you're feeling like as a parent, you know, hey, we love you. We want you to stay healthy. We want you to be warm. What if something happened when you were driving and you don't have a coat, at least in the car? You know, we're urging him, you have it, put it on, use it. The same thing happens in scripture when it talks about our relationship to Christ as a child of God. You accept Christ, you are a child of God. Positionally, all these things are true. But now live like one. Live like a child of God. Work at it. Put on the new self that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, what he's talking about here, is that we love what is right. We begin to love the things that God loves. And holiness is turning from sin. In this example, it means free from contamination, free from sin in our life. So it's putting on one thing and putting off the other. And the scripture encourages us over and over again to work at this. In 2 Peter 3.14, the scripture says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, to his return, make every effort to be spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Make every effort. Work at this to be spotless blameless and at peace with him again in hebrews 12 14 he says make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness no one will see the lord now that's sobering without uh, an attitude that says that this is my heart's desire that this is what I'm working at striving for to be holy without effort without diligence in that he's saying no one will see the Lord now he's not saying that by this you earn your salvation we don't no salvation is a gift it's God's grace but if we have truly been born again and are saved there's going to be a heart change it causes us to want to work at it and to strive for the things that God wants to see in us. There'll be that change and you can see it in a person's life. Both are important. Now, this is serious business. This is something that we are to give our life to and to work at, not casually, but diligently to be growing in our relationship with Christ. There's a book that I came across. It's written by Michael uh, Giglier, if I'm pronouncing his name right. But he wrote some stories about the Grand Canyon that are called Over the Edge. 
Death in the Grand Canyon. And in that book, he chronicled nearly 700 deaths that have occurred in the Grand Canyon since it became kind of a park or phenomena in the 1870s. And most people aren't shocked that some people have died there. I mean, it is pretty uh, rugged territory and people aren't always smart in the things that they do. But he went through these 700 deaths that have been recorded there. And how did most of them occur? Well, some died because of plane crashes or helicopter crashes in that area. Some died because of floods along the river. Some died because of heat and dehydration. But most died because of carelessness. Because of carelessness. People getting too close to the edge and ignoring the warnings. For example, in 1992, there was a 38-year-old father who jokingly tried to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping on a guard wall. He flailed his arms as he pretended to lose his balance, and then he kind of jumped back off of this, this guard wall onto a ledge behind it, kind of wanting to scare his daughter. He assumed the ledge was safe, but sadly it was not. And after ignoring those warnings, he lost his footing and fell 400 feet to his death. Or in 2012, an 18-year-old woman was hiking on the North Rim Trail, and she decided to venture off the path and to have her picture taken at a place known as Inspiration Point. And as she sat down on the ledge of this 1,500-foot drop, the rocks gave way and she plummeted to her death. Those deaths are tragic, but they were also completely avoidable. Instead of having an attitude that says, you know, I wonder how close I can get to the rim without falling, they would have been much better served to listen to the warnings, to stay where the trails are marked or to stay where the areas are safe. And sadly, sometimes people approach their Christian life that way too. And they kind of see, well, how close can I get to sin without sinning? Or how far can I push the boundaries of sin? And sin is tricky, and sin is crafty, and sin will grab you. And will take hold of you unless it is put to death. That's what Paul is getting at here. You know, one of the things I see in people, and I've seen this in myself early as a Christian, uh, early in the Christian life, you know, I've kind of bought into the, one of the lies of Satan. And one of the lies of Satan is that holiness is dull and boring. You know, as a young person, sometimes you may think that if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to give up everything that's sort of fun in life, you know, and uh, I'll just be kind of this boring life. And that is just an outrageous lie of the enemy. Holiness is not dull and boring. Holiness is where freedom is found. Holiness is where love abounds. Holiness is where joy and peace and wisdom overflow. And I can tell you from walking with Christ, I wouldn't change that at all. I would not want to go back to the old way of life. 
But that lie is out there. And sometimes people think that way. Or think of a young woman who said to her pastor, she said, you know, she was hesitant to commit her life fully to Christ because she felt like she was going to have to do these things that she disliked. But she was determined to be a real Christian. And one year later, she said to her pastor, she said, Pastor, it is so different. When I began to follow Christ, feeling that I would have to do all the things that were contrary to my desires, God changed my heart. And now I find myself wanting to please him every day because God has made me pleased with the things that please him. Whole attitude changed. That she began to delight in the things of God and the more she grew in that relationship with him, the more joy she experienced. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He once commented to an American friend, he said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting statement. What a great statement. Is it possible to be happy and holy? Amen, it is. In fact, it's the only way to live. And if Christians were living that way, it would be an irresistible attraction to others in our world. In his presence is fullness of joy. Jesus said that I, I came that you might have life and might have it to the full. And the only thing that's going to break the power of sin in our life is our love for Jesus and our delight in him. So what do we do? Knowing what we know, how now shall we live? How do we live as Christians in a fallen world? Well, we take what the scripture says here to heart and we turn from sin. And I would ask you, is there any area of your life that you need to especially focus on in this area? Is there some sin that causes you to stumble? Is there some attitude in your heart that you need to bring before the Lord in his light? And ask God to search your heart and to give you the strength to say no to sin. And then be renewed in your mind. These things go hand in hand. Spend that time in the word. If you don't have a plan for consistent reading of God's word or fellowship with him or studying the scripture, then start today. And make a plan and dig in and meet with other Christians who can help you to do that and be growing in your understanding of the word. Enroll in his school, get to know Jesus, and your heart will change. And strive to be holy. Strive to be like him every day. Abide in him, walk with him, and let his joy fill your life and your heart. Let's pray. Father, when we come to the scripture in a passage like this, we see that these things are not complicated. They are really quite simple at the heart in terms of what we need to do, but we feel sometimes the battle. The busyness of life, the old nature that rears its ugly head, the temptations that are out there in the world, and it is a choice we must make. And Father, I pray for all of us that increasingly in our life we would see victory and we'd see good progress in becoming more like Jesus, and we would find our heart overflowing with the joy that comes from him alone. Father, may you be pleased in us and help us to grow and to become fully devoted followers of your son. Amen.